Do you miss us? I do. Is this, uh, is this the... I'm feeling so nostalgic. <laughs> Just keeping Aaron in line. Ooh. It's sort of working. <laughs> Some things have changed, but not many. Best laid plans. <laughs> Hey everyone, Jess here from Asemio, and I'm so glad to see you here. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of season two of Asemio Decoded. We're happy to be back after a couple of months of rest, recharge, and reflection. And during that period, we took some time to engage in some creative thinking and ideation about the podcast, and we're really looking forward to sharing some of those updates and changes with you over the next several episodes. But one thing that's not changing is that we are going to continue to bring you interviews with some amazing people who are doing great work at the intersection of tech and doing good in the world. And today we have a very special guest, Lucy Dahl, the current program director for Family and Children's Services Parenting in Jail program. Lucy is also an esteemed member of the Semio Alumni Network. So you're going to hear from her here in a moment, but I wanted to share why we were so excited to have her join us. Lucy has a particularly interesting background that gives her a unique perspective, one that most don't share, and where others have gone deep, she's gone very broad. So she has experience working in Big Five Consulting, she's worked for a nonprofit on the data side, she's worked for a services provider in the software space, that's us, and she's worked in philanthropy. And now she's back in the nonprofit sector working as a program director. So you could say she's kind of done it all. We're eager to get into the interview so you can hear from her directly on what it's like to bring this multidimensional perspective into the work that she's doing and to hear how her thinking has really evolved regarding the use of data and tech in the nonprofit world. So with that, let's dive in. What is your role? What are you doing today to state, you know, your title, you mentioned your director. Yep. um, I work at Family and Children's Services, uh, which is a large community mental health agency here in Tulsa. So Family and Children's Services is a nonprofit based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in 2021, Family and Children's celebrated its 100th anniversary serving Tulsans. That's pretty wild. FNCS exists to help under-resourced and struggling Tulsans by providing a myriad of services. So examples of the kinds of programs that they offer include Women in Recovery, which was our very first client and to whom we will be eternally grateful, and WEIR diverts women from incarceration. And if you ever have the opportunity to attend a WEIR graduation, do it. You can thank us later. Really, you should thank the team at WEIR, um, but bring tissues. Another example of one of family and children's programs is COPES. And COPES works in connection with the Tulsa police and fire departments to offer community response teams to respond to 911 calls that are related to mental health. So you're going to learn more, of course, from Lucy about her programming, Parenting in Jail, as we continue on the interview. And I'm a program director of a program called Parenting in Jail. So I have um, an incredible team of educators that go out and work in um, the county jail here, David L. Moss in Tulsa County, but also to um, four of our surrounding county jails in in rural Oklahoma. We go in and we teach men and women parenting skills. We use an evidence-based curriculum called Parenting Inside Out that was specifically built to address the unique situation of incarcerated parents or parents that have been involved in the criminal legal system. So we're teaching you effective communication and positive discipline, just like, you know, more traditional parenting class, but it's taught with understanding that maybe you can't go home and practice that with your kids tonight. So maybe we're going to practice effective communication when you get your video call with your kiddos this week. Or um, let's talk about how we use problem solving to maybe help repair a relationship with the kid's caregiver. Um, So very specific to their situations. And then 
And three of our jails were able to facilitate visits with the kiddos and their parents or grandparents um, on a weekly basis. And so we bring them in for child-centered contact visits. So they're not behind the glass. Um, they're not you know, having to talk through a phone. They're coming in and they're having an hour to hug their parents, to read books, play with toys. They're very, we do everything we can to make them you know, not traumatic, to make them child-centered. And so they know mom and dad are, are safe and they know they're loved. They hear them, feel them, hug. And, and they hear that you know, it's not their fault that their parents aren't with them right now. Um, and then we also support caregivers is kind of the third piece. So most of our caregivers are not involved formally with child welfare systems. They are bio parent. They are grandma who took the call in the middle of the night and picked up kids. And they're not getting really, in many cases, formal support. And so we have a caregiver support group where it's a safe space where they have peers that are going through the same thing. And then we link them to resources that can help provide for the kiddos, provide for them, knowing they've often taken on something that they were not expecting to. And they often don't have any end date. You know, we have parents that have been in jail for two plus years in our county jails, um, not in prison, that don't know when they're getting out. Uh, so there's no, there's a lot of unknowns for these families. And so it's really just so important to us. You know, often these parents never learned parenting skills. They've never taken a class. They were parented, you know, they're parenting how they were parented or and so there's a lot of learning there. And then it's just making sure those kiddos know that it's not that mom's on vacation. You know, sometimes we try to protect kids and we think jail or, or incarceration is scary. But I think on, you know, when you flip that and then a child internalizes like mom's been on vacation for three years and she hasn't wanted to check in. I mean, that that does a lot of damage itself. So there's effective ways to communicate to children. And so that's that's our goal. And, you know, connect them to their to their parents and their loved ones. It's funny because to hear you talk about so much uh, in this space when we work, you know, you work with different levels of interventions. And you mentioned earlier that there's nothing more powerful than watching a family unify. And what hearing you talk about the work, what it brings up for me is not an appreciation for what you're doing. That does is there, but that's not the primary thing. It's not, you know, oh, cool. Like an appreciation for family children's services or thinking about how the services wrap around in a holistic manner, system interventions. It brings up when I was a kid, because my mom was dual diagnosis. She had bipolar disorder and was a heroin addict. And I remember when the cops came and I don't know why they were there. I still don't know actually, but all I know is police were there and my grandmother's coming to pick. I mean, literally what you're saying the grandparents pick up in the middle yeah. of the night. It's amazing decades later, how the story hasn't changed. What has changed though, is that there are services there. And, you know, I remember my, when we were going through the court process of reunification, my mom was living in Louisiana. I was living in Texas. She would drive eight hours one way on a Friday morning, come and get the kids, get right back in the car, like five minutes, and then drive eight hours back for a weekend and then do it on Sunday. So I think, I guess all that to say that it's amazing how little attention, like how hard it is, I should say, to tell the story in a way that if you haven't lived it, you get any idea of the emotional impact and intensity of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, everyone on my team will tell you that visits, you know, it's, it's not easy. We are going out to rural counties in the evening. They're driving home late at night every week. And they will also tell you that visits are the best part of our jobs. I mean, it, Parents get to practice what they're learning. And like I said, kids, when we have kids run in that first visit, they were there, like you said, they were there when mom was arrested and they have no idea if she's safe. 
They have no idea. I mean, they are internalizing. Maybe they're, you know, maybe someone's talking to them about it. Maybe not. I mean, we have a lot of really well-intentioned caregivers who are really concerned that the child's going to experience stigma. So they don't tell the school. So, you know, six-year-old Sarah goes to school the next day after being there when mom's rested and is supposed to act like everything is fine. Um, And so a lot of that is that education around there are ways we can talk about it. And then also just there is nothing more valuable than, than Sarah actually seeing and hearing from mom, I am safe. Um, you know, we had a visit where we had a sibling set of five that hadn't seen mom in, I think over a year and a half, they don't even live in the same homes. They hadn't seen each other since the arrest, the, the four, you know, uh, several of the children were there when she was arrested. Um, and they saw her and said, what are you doing here? The first visit, what are you doing in jail? She said, I'm becoming a better mom. I'm learning how to be a better mom. And, you know, cue all of us having to turn and face the wall to not, but I mean, it, it gives it gives families, it gives the individual in jail hope when there's often not a lot of opportunities for hope in, in jail. Um, and it gives family that, that connection and that hopefully time to heal. We can't solve everything. Like there is so much that happens before we come into contact with the family, but yeah. And we have caregivers that drive hours round trip every week. What, you know, just like your grandmother, we give a gas card to reduce transportation barriers, but these families will do anything for each other in a lot of the cases. And it's just even when their resources are low. And so it's how do we give them extra opportunities to be together? And and it's complicated. I mean, every story is not the same. Every family doesn't get a visit. There are, we of course want to keep the best interest of the children in mind and we want it to be safe for all. And so there's lots of things our team does to vet that, but there are also just a lot of really positive stories of families getting to reconnect and, you know, siblings in that scenario, reconnecting in a jail, which is not where you would think that kids that live in separate homes would get to see each other for the first time, but the siblings are rushing up to each other in the jail, hugging each other. I mean, it's, it's an unlikely place for stories of hope, but we, we have a lot of them. Um, and it's, it's, so it's the latest is 11% of children in our state have it, have or had an incarcerated parent or guardian. So, I mean, there are a lot, this is not a small problem. Um, it's, and like you said, it's been happening for a long time, but it's really become as we incarcerate more and more people, it affects more and more children too. I think it's beautiful. Just the idea of, of healing and becoming a better person and, and hope is most important. And perhaps difficult in when you're in hopeless situations. Right. And so switching gears, like you mentioned something earlier around it. It's funny because I could see myself struggling with the same thing. I think you nonprofit third sector. I sometimes say do good sector, social impact sector, helping mm-hmm. field. Ooh, you use that. I like that. I might steal yeah. it. I'll give you credit. Helping field. Throw it in there. Like, how do we describe this work that spans community-based organizations, state and local government, philanthropy? And you've been, you've been actually at all of those levels, federal government, community-based organizations, in philanthropy, on the service provider side of it. And I'm always struggling in landing on this like social impact work, which feels maybe even not right side. So when you think about the work, is there, have you found a good word to encompass I feel like social impact is the most all-encompassing, and yet I don't find myself saying that day to day. It feels a little, I mean, even more when I was a consultant, it sounded good. But now that yeah. I'm in it, like, I don't know how often I'm I'm introducing myself as working in the social impact field, but I do think it's the most all-encompassing. I just don't yeah. know how day to day when you're working at a nonprofit that that is the way you phrase your work. It's almost like there's a disconnect in 
it's not disingenuous, but that's the word I keep almost going to. It's not, there's something, a level of depth that it's missing. And I've had this discussion with other coworkers here at Asimio when I've described us as a social enterprise. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I get kickback where it's like, well, are we really, I think a social enterprise is a nonprofit that's applying a certain set of practices. Mm. So it's, if you're actually working, it's hard to define the sector in general, but if you're a for-profit organization that is working with a higher social goal, it's even more difficult, I feel like. Yeah, you've got multiple layers in there and we haven't even yeah. figured out the bottom, <laughs> the foundational exactly. layer. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you solve that, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I will, uh, I'll ponder on that. I, I do, I say social impact sometimes, um, but I, it does feel... I don't know. It doesn't feel as authentic, like you said. I don't, but I don't know the right. A little lofty. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it what it is. It's disconnected. Yeah. yeah. It's like these families are, you know, in hell. Like we are in hell. Like right. people are dealing with stuff are in hell. Right. Social impacts like, oh, we're going to improve society a little bit. It's like, yeah. no, like there's vicious terrors happening here. And like Portia Kennel, an amazing woman that helped um, form a lot of Educare's uh, structures and processes and initial programming once described it best. And I'm not going to be able to do it like she did, but she basically described it m- metaphorically, even though it feels literal sometimes about families are fighting battles against demonic forces. And when you see these things at play that I relate, that resonates with me that there's real, like whatever your shape of evil is, there's real evil forces at play here. So to say, in the social impact field <laughs> feels disconnected. Agreed. Yeah. Arms length. So Lizzie, you talked about, you know, the family visits as being the mm-hmm. highlight, you know, for yeah. your team. And, you know, it's not hard to see why, but there's an emotional toll that comes with the work. I'm sure anybody that's working in the helping field, right. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be close. They're right up front. There are, you know, you hear different metaphors of people being on the front lines and there's reasons for that. So I'm curious, you know, what do, what does your team do to protect their emotional state? What kind of tools do they turn to, to do the work and to be able to sustain doing this day after day and supporting families so that they can be a source of strength and support and do all the great things that y'all have been doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're always looking for additional tools to give them and, and, you know, even in supervision to make sure that we, I think that we can always continue to, to strive to find additional tools, but heavy supervision and always being available. So it's myself and, um, I have, uh, our, we have a team program supervisor that, as well. And so I think having more leadership, more voices that are always available, I think that never feeling it's a really clear message that no one is ever, you're never alone. I mean, you might be a county away, but we are a phone call away and we can always talk through anything that's going on. And and sometimes there are hard days where, especially in this work, you know, some of the hardest things I think are, we're seeing, we're working with families in this very much a transition and an un, period, an uncertain point in their lives. They're not in prison. They are in jail and they may be released to the community. They may be facing a long prison sentence. They may be facing deportation. They may not know. They may be awaiting trial. And so we're really, you know, working with these families in quite an unknown time. And so often we will see incredible progress 
And then mom is sent to prison and mom is sent to prison far away from kiddos. And there are programs that certainly help in our Oklahoma prisons, but sometimes they're sent out of state to a different federal prison and we don't have access to programs for them. And they're now six hours from their kids or what have you. So there are some times where it's really hard to feel positive, but I think really focusing on the wins as a team is something we really pride ourselves on too. So, I mean, that win may be mom just got, you know, her first phone call with her kiddo after repairing, you know, her relationship with her caregiver in seven months, like the whole team is celebrating like this. That is a win. Um, It's also a win if mom, you know, on a larger scale moves home after being released and is, is actively living with and parenting your children. That's a win. But I think celebrating every success, no matter, you know, how incremental it may be, knowing that every family has different measures of success given at the point we're working with them. I think we try really hard to really um, celebrate those moments. And I think that's a big piece. And then we just encourage folks to, you know, to speak up if there's just, if it's a hard day for them, we have coverage. Like I think there are hard days and we just have to recognize that we're humans too. And so, but I'm also always looking for additional ways that they can, you know, practice self-care. You know, like part of talking about, like part of hearing you talk about how you support the team in different ways reminds me of another point in the conversation when you were talking about the similarities between the different roles you've played and it's helping people be more efficient, make their jobs easier, supporting them. And I really appreciate that about, that comes out about your leadership style. And one of the biggest growth areas that I feel like I've had at Asimio was realizing the importance of that, of, of care and support. And just recently, there was a, a HBR article around positive relational energy. I read that. I loved it. Yes. Isn't it amazing? Yes. Uh, yeah. I thought so, it was super helpful and something that's not typically, like it's usually such an intangible and the fact that they were able to kind of wrap their arms around measuring that. Because I think we've all experienced leaders like that that have a contagious energy and like when they show up in the office, like everyone's, you know, excited to give their win or to give them an update on something they talked about. And like that can set the tone for the whole day. And I, I do think I was very inspired by that article. Um, I think it was a really good reminder being in a new leadership position that even if I'm having a bad day, that like letting that show can have like can have ripple effects on your team. Not that we aren't human, not that you have to always put on a brave face, but just understanding influence that can have when you're a leader of a team. Um, just that awareness, like, like I said, you don't, if it's a bad day, sometimes it's a bad day, but just understanding the power that you can have, I think is pretty important, but yeah, yeah. I cut you off, but I thought that was a great article. No, I think that's, a, uh, I really appreciate your perspective on that. And, and I agree. And I'm, I never, like, I'm, I'm always like, why don't we get it? You know, like we saw Project Aristotle from Google where they were researching what makes high-performing teams. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Safe, supportive, caring environment. You get this research that's positive relational energy. You go back to it, Edward Demi. Like you just kind of look around and go, wow, people are human and like to be supported and cared for and motivated and positive. Mm-hmm. And it's the right thing to do because it's pleasant, enjoyable, and supportive. And it's good for your business mm-hmm. or your organizational goals. So to me, it's it's kind of like when people are struggling to understand health and at a basic level, if you're eating well and you're sleeping well and you're getting good physical activity and lower stress, 
there's kind of a one-on-one that's pretty simple. It may be incredibly complex or difficult or impossible sometimes to implement, but same thing with leadership. Some of the basic things are almost self-evident. Still doesn't make it easy to put into practice. No, because I mean, we've all, I've also been there when it is a bad day, whether it's because meetings aren't going, you know, had hard meetings or something comes out of nowhere. I haven't had a second to sit or eat, you know what I mean? I think it's easier said than done some days to be a positive relational person. Um, But I think, I I do think the first step is understanding that potential impact. Like just, I appreciated that, like knowing that that energy can be quite influential on others around you. But yeah, I think it's, we can read about it all day, but some days it's harder to implement (laughs) Yeah, because we're humans too. No doubt about that. Yeah. So, in a slightly different direction, I want to, we had a kind of an interesting conversation at the beginning about the tool, the mm-hmm. like technical tools that your team is using and how people in the helping field, how they frame it. And we often here at Asimio and with some of our partners call them, you know, refer largely to them as case management you know, systems, care coordination tools. So can you talk a little bit about like, what do you hear? How is it discussed? You know, how do you hear your peers and your team talk about these tools? I think in our field, like working with a lot of folks who are therapists or case managers, that's not the folks on my team. um, But we do, we are embedded in an organization where that is the primary workforce. So there's a lot around documentation. There's a lot around the EHR, you know, things of that nature. Um, I think, I think care coordination fits our plan case management software. Like, I don't know, we aren't doing how our organization defines case management, um, doesn't really fit for us. And so I think care coordination makes sense. I'm trying to think how really like the educators on my team would like, if I told them to describe it, I'm really trying to channel like what they would say. Um, cause I think the purpose for them is, is there's multiple purposes about why we capture. Like they know we have data that we report to our funders, but they also know there's data that helps inform our program. And so it's, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what they would call it, but I feel like care coordination is a better fit. Do you ever like hear people referring to it as a database, just the database? I feel like data system. Data system. Okay. Cause some, I sometimes hear people say database, which is, you know, from a technical perspective, <laughs> Like, just kind of like, well, not exactly. <laughs> not, yeah, you just, but you don't, it's not helpful to get into pedantic like discussion about data architecture. So you want to like, but then I find myself taking these terms on and you have to switch from talking with an engineer, mm-hmm. you know, like switch the terminology, but database, your software system, case management system, care coordination system. Yeah. Data system is probably the broadest, like, yeah, that sounds right. So when we say data system, generally we're referring to a type of technology that not only enables users to collect and access data, but also supports them in their workflow by suggesting steps and actions via tools like wizards or reminders. It's interactive and it can be quite complex. On the other hand, a database is typically more narrow in scope in that it primarily exists to store and enable access to data but doesn't necessarily offer lots of bells and whistles to support day-to-day operations, at least from the perspective of, say, a program director at a nonprofit. You might have a database full of information about, say, the number of people for whom you've made referrals to other organizations, and then you could layer on other systems and tools to help you get access and make meaning and use that data for your day-to-day work. 
again, I want to just comment that there is nuance here. And there's, you know, depending on the field that you work in, you may use these terms differently. For example, somebody who works in healthcare may think about these, you know, different roles and terms in one way versus somebody who works in basic needs like rent and utility assistance. But usually the biggest differentiator here is related to scope. So case management is typically more narrow and focused. For example, in healthcare, it may be oriented towards one particular disease, the management of that disease for a patient, whereas care coordination tends to be much broader in scope. And Lucy, you, when you were here on Mm -hmm. our team, you Mm -hmm. were an integral part of designing and informing the build Mm -hmm. and successful implementation or not successful in recovery (laughs) and all the lessons learned. And so I'm so curious then now in the role that you are, what insights have you carried forward? You know, are you looking at systems going like, oh, that's no big deal? (laughs) Or, oh, that's going to be tough. Or why did they design it this way? You know, what, how do you approach it? How do you think about it? Or do you? I do. I think I love how adaptable our system is. I think that's so important with a care coordination system. You know, as we think about some of the pitfalls, like I think one size fits all doesn't work. Thinking about like the growth our program has gone through in the last year, we got a large contract. We went from a team of two to a team of eight, from one county serving women to five plus counties serving men and women, Um, just quite a bit of growth. And to think like if our system wouldn't have allowed for us to continue to to grow, if our system couldn't have grown with us, um, it would have been a really um, big challenge. So that's wonderful. But also on the flip side, I remember seeing like how quickly people would kind of keep adding on to their system, right? Because like they just, and they're without zooming out and looking at the overall architecture or um, are you sure we're not also capturing this somewhere else? Or are we now reusing this field for something it doesn't mean? Like I see how quickly that can happen. When I was sitting in the consultant side, I was like, can you believe that they're using this birth date field as, you know, what have you? But I now see how quickly when, you have to make these decisions. Like you have a funder that now wants this new metric and you need to start reporting on it today. And, or, you know, your program just expanded to five counties or like all of our fields were for women. And then it was like, oh, we serve men tomorrow. Okay. Let's go through and um, not make people answer whether, you know, what their pregnancy status is or what have you. I mean, like there were just these things that we had always built in one way. So I can see the urgency and how it can start to snowball if you don't keep an eye on it strategically. Um, But I think I was probably quicker to judge sitting on the other side, like, how did this system get here? (laughs) And now I'm like, I absolutely get it. And, And I've been the funder that wanted the metric that didn't exist. I mean, I fully understand how all the players think they're doing the right thing and it gets this way. And then like, and then one a software engineer is looking at a database going, wait, so you're telling me if they were born before January 13th, 1980, they're male. Right. And they're born after right. January 14th, they're female. And if they're born between this period, they're non-binary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, I totally see how we could get there. Um, and we're really fortunate to have an incredible data analyst in-house. And we, you know, have a contract with you guys for the consulting piece to check us on those things. Like, we are really fortunate. We are not like a four-person nonprofit that is piecing it together. And so, I mean, I fully, the empathy probably is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, but when I started my new role, I talked to someone um, who runs a nonprofit when I was the funder. And I was in the thick of looking through the outcome measures that had been promised in my contract before I joined the team. And he's like, How's thing, how are things going? And I was like, 
great, but the empathy for you that I have now when I was the one requesting all of these measures, because now I'm reading through like, there's no way we could measure this. Like, who put this down? Um, and so I think, yeah, there's a lot of, I think we all do the best we can, but you can definitely see how those systems could could get a little wonky over time. That's amazing. Well, that puts you in such a great position too, to be able to connect the dots between not only your team and leadership, but with the vendors and partners you're working with and with the funders too. I mean, you have just like the most awesome holistic perspective. I don't know about that, but like every version of me looks back and judges the previous version a little bit. Like I think there's like the judgment, the empathy, like whatever it is. I think it's, it is, it is an interesting dynamic to have been able to, to, to sit in each seat for so, sure. Introspective yeah. human condition. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Always room for growth. That, that I also resonate with that on never being satisfied with being where you're at or always yeah. thinking about your historical perspective mm-hmm. and decisions and how you could have done better. On that point, just recently, we had our annual planning offsite for Simia, where we're looking at our strategy and our one-year plan mm-hmm. and we're looking at our values. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome because we went through an assessment of the current values we have, just checking it. Are these still accurate or whatnot? And someone, and we were going through it and someone had asked about the, the iteration over the years of the values yeah. and you were part of that. Yeah. Work. And I remember talking about empathy and how I got on there and how we yes. got through all the checks. And it's funny to hear you talk about empathy now because you were advocating and really inserting a necessary component of who we are as an organization by highlighting empathy. And so I'll be forever grateful for that and your work. And that was early, early on yeah. too. I think that was the first few months of my time at SMEO. Yeah. yeah. I think consulting and when I was, you know, prior to SMEO, but especially at SMEO, getting to work so closely with nonprofits, I feel like we would, you know, I would come in and say, what, tell me everything you do. And then the follow-ups were, and why do you do it that way? And like, I would deliver that as tactfully as possible, but I think it's really hard when people are doing good work every day to not feel a little affronted by like, why do you need to know why these are my steps? And and so I think leading with empathy in those scenarios when you're trying to process map or understand requirements, you know, especially given the fact that you're often working with someone who, you know, doesn't have enough hours in their day, maybe has has worked with someone, you know, like we just talked about earlier that their trajectory isn't the way that they were hoping, you know, something bad happened to that family. And then now I'm having to walk through my process. You know I mean? I think empathy yeah. goes a long way in these scenarios yeah. because I think you can get, you can gain that trust and then and hopefully help them do their, their jobs more efficiently. That's the end goal. When you're working in a hard situation, what toll that does that have on you to your point? And then walking into through a door to talk, to a data system designer yeah. is almost absurd. Yeah. You know? And so I feel like we joke about being data therapists, but in some way, that's not a joke because having that empathy, like how like people don't expect your data company and technology company to come in and share in that vulnerability and that humanness as a part of core part of who they are. But I actually think that it's not just a fun, cool way to be. I think it's necessary in this space because when right. your processes, the a, a technology system is supposed to help make your processes solidify them in some instances, make them more easy, efficient, et cetera, in other instances. But process is core to what we do. And if you're 
And emotions are also part of what you do in the process are all that stuff can get jumbled up together. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you can't compartmentalize those things. Yeah. The, the work is very, I mean, it's very tangled up in the process and the data. And yeah, to say, this is just a data meeting. I'm just here to understand your data system requirements and, you know, divorce that from the work you just did before this and the work you're doing after doesn't make any sense. I mean, you have to recognize the, it's all quite interconnected. It really is. And it's also sometimes, I think really absurd comes to mind because you're, you're looking at a data model and trying to fit in things like um, colors that someone has for a, a urinary analysis or something. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, how many colors? Well, how often would the colors change? And you're just, these things are completely at odds with each other to some degree. The, the flip, so the other bullet point. Okay. It's a fun story. I don't remember it exactly, but I think, but your attention to detail and memory, I'm depending on you to remember it better than me. All I remember is we were fenced in somewhere. Oh, I think it was Milwaukee. It was Milwaukee. Was it Milwaukee? It was Milwaukee. And I just remember this being one of the funniest episodes because, okay, you have a background as a consultant. You're an amazingly intelligent individual. You're a natural problem solver. But I was not scaling that fence. Exactly. I have those photos. (laughs) There's photos. Can we link them in show notes? Absolutely not. Yes. We were at the United Way. We had some like later stakeholder interviews. I still don't understand I think someone was still in the building, but there was no way to reach them. So we were trapped outside of the building, but inside. No, there was like a the car in the foot. parking lot. And we thought someone was probably in there because they had let, someone earlier had left and let us know that someone would be around. And we're, I think we were like interviewing in some kind of basement or lower level it, thing. Yeah. So we didn't we know anyone dungeon. Yeah. It was a dungeon. And it was definitely like a taller fence than you. Yeah. At and least eight feet tall. It was, link. yeah. It was like eight feet tall. And I remember we went outside and we're like, okay, now we're going to leave. And we called our we called Uber. An Uber. Yeah. The Uber drove up and we were like, we cannot get across we the fence. We're sorry, Uber, sir. Right. Go on without us. Yeah. So we released the Uber. But, and then there was, there was a, we were kind of sitting there not knowing what to do. And we tried to call our contact the United Way and there was no answer. So we're like 20 minutes in. And then we see like, I think across the street, there was a couple in a car or something were looking at us strangely. And I think they, didn't they walk over and try and help us at some point? There's a few people walking by. They're like, what are y'all doing? And we're like, we're not sure. We're trapped. Yeah. And we weren't scaling. I was willing to, to try that, but I don't think that the tire was all that helpful for either one of us on that. We're in more formal clothing. I can't right. remember what the top of it is. Probably one of those, there's Barbed probably pokey wire. things at the yeah. top. Yeah. <laughs> Risk was high. Yeah. We were not, someone was going to get hurt. So did you scoot under? That's what I was trying to remember. Yeah, there was eventually there was like we pushed enough of a gap and I did scoot under. I don't know how I did somehow lodged your body underneath the fence. I turned myself into smoke and drifted through. No, there was some we found problems a weak spot in the system. That's what we found. Our problem solving skills were good. Our consulting skills. We found a weak spot. We leveraged a certain amount. I think there's a probably a video somewhere of this. Yeah, of one of us scooting through fits. My files. Lucy's chagrin. Jess's files. Yeah. (laughs) So we can't link in show notes any of this. Okay. No, no. There's some things that just live on in the memory and contained within a small group. (laughs) Just to confirm, y'all, yes, I have the photos. And no, I'm not going to be sharing them. Lucy, I've got your back. I just want to say a huge thank you to Lucy, who we've known for many years and once again, um, does not disappoint. That was an amazing interview. A lot of interesting stories and perspectives there. One 
one thing that I really appreciated was this idea of being a part of the helping industry. I think that was a great way to frame the work that we all do here. And the one of my takeaways was that even with the different perspectives of a service provider, um, a philanthropist, of a service organization who is a partner on the data side, for example, Lucy has all of those perspectives. And one of the things she mentioned that was common across all of them is the idea of helping improve society. Another takeaway was for me was understanding around empathy and how important empathy is in the work we do. We often think, at least I often think about data systems um, as scientific and deterministic and in some ways sterile. But in reality, um, we know that when they're applied to this space, to the helping space, that they're very, very messy. And it helps to have that empathy to get through um, what can be the difficult process of building and sustaining these data systems that support the work. Yeah. Another takeaway, really building off that second point about things getting messy in data systems is that it was really validating the approach that we take to software development that we build in a way that supports iteration, both during the initial build, but as time goes on to be able to respond to changes and the way that programs are managed, but also on a day-to-day basis. And the reality is, as Lucy was describing, sometimes they have to make changes on a dime because of a request from a funder or just a shifting need in the community. And these systems can't be rigid. They can't hold the people back who are trying to use it to do their work. Otherwise, it defeats the purpose. So it was just nice to hear her perspective and to share for her to share some specific examples of where that comes into play. So this is a new segment, something that we wanted to introduce to get more of your thinking in our podcast. Be sure to keep an eye out on our social media because we're going to be requesting different topics and questions so that we can answer them on this podcast. So Aaron, we've talked a lot about case management, care coordination, data systems. And a question that one of our team members brought up is, what is the most important thing to focus on when building a good data system? I have a feeling these are all going to be really great questions. That one is certainly a great question. It's a difficult question to answer because there are a lot of important things to focus on when building a data system. And if I have to choose just one, then I would say that it is getting good alignment between the workflow in the system and your organizational processes, which has a lot of implications. You have to have an understanding of your organizational processes if those are um, need updating or are themselves uh, inefficient in ways, then that kind of can can um, seep out into your data system. You can actually solidify inefficient workflow. So the alignment of workflow to your organizational processes through the data system is very important. And that's one of the reasons that we also call out that one of the most important project roles, if you're building a data system, is um, that kind of single point of contact of an individual that understands not just how the system should be built, but the why of how the system should be built. So Aaron, Thomas asks, how does a software developer balance the need to write software that works for the organization that's commissioned the build of that data system 
in a way that will easily communicate with other dissimilar but connected organizations or systems? That's a great question. And what one of the things that I love about Thomas's question is embedded in his question is the answer to Aaron's other question around what's the most important thing to focus on. Because Thomas knows as a software engineer that alignment to the organization's processes is important. And that's the first part of the question is how do you balance between the, the need to align to an organization's processes with your software and then also there's embedded in, the, in on the other end of the spectrum this idea of software being able to communicate with other uh, organizations, and with so I guess my first thought on that is that it's an a question of architecture of the software, and in software architecture, there's this idea of decoupling or loosely coupling or uh, separation of concerns. It comes through through that philosophical concept as well where you have different parts of a system that are responsible for doing a thing really well, and they should be loosely connected to other parts of the system that have other concerns. So for example, here we have a part of the system that is concerned about workflow and tracking information and moving you through a process. And another part of the system is thinking about how it can connect with other systems. So they, although they are definitely connected, they're not there's not as much of a tension between them if you architect the software correctly and put the the connectivity and the um, connecting to other systems parts where they belong and then the workflow parts where they belong. You have that architecture down well and it's less of a concern. Thank you again to Lucy for joining us. It was such a blast to get to connect and to have you join us on Semio Decoded. And for listeners, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes.